some verses from Hebrews 11, just to remind ourselves of the, uh, in many ways, the attestation of Scripture uh, to the quality and the faith of the men that we've been considering. So Hebrews 11, and we'll start to read at verse 30. we read these words by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace and what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, (coughs) turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered to deserts and mountains in danes and caves of the earth. All these, including Gideon, Barak, Jephthah and Samson, all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. It's a wonderful reminder there of the uh, way in which these people are remembered, these judges are remembered, and the way in which Scripture adds uh, to the remembrance of them and the fact that they had such a gift of faith. We're going to continue now in our studies in uh, Judges this evening and uh, just a few uh, slides to help us catch up. And where we were, it's been a few weeks and a few drops of water have flown under a few bridges probably. So, judges in Israel, and we come this evening to, again, pick up on the um, life and the uh, work and God's plan and purpose for Gideon. Gideon, uh, as we learned last week, uh, was in many ways a reluctant judge. He asked for proof. And so we come to consider the following chapters. We just remind ourselves of where the action takes place. We see there the land settled by the tribes after Joshua had brought them over. And you can see there on the uh, on your right-hand side map, um, Gideon there uh, towards the upper half of the top half. Gideon and Jephthah there, Deborah above him. The uh, people that we've already looked at. And so we remember that Gideon's main battle 
his main oppressor were the Midianites and uh, they were as we said descendants of Midian and one of the sons of Abraham by his concubine and where did they live well they lived just below there uh, at the bottom of the map there in that part of the land although it uh, included territory on the west as well as on the east of the Gulf of Aqaba uh, the blue space there beside the word Midian is in fact the Gulf of Aqaba lay between Edom and Paran and in the time of the judges their district seems to have extended northward to the east of Gilead so uh, this is the nation and this is where they come from uh, to um, to cause havoc amongst the people and of Israel uh, to oppress them as we know they came and destroyed crops and carried away animals carried away crops as well and left the people of Israel destitute living in caves so just a reminder of Judges 6 and uh, these few points that uh, Dow Ralph Davis makes concerning uh, chapter 6 in verse 10 we find the word of criticism right at the end of verse 10 God says through the prophet that he sent but you have not obeyed my voice this was the main charge repeated time and time again to the people of Israel during the period of the judges and then there was the word that tells us of the grace that holds us verses 8 to 10 he reminds the Israelites of the work of Almighty God bringing them up from Egypt from the house of the bondage I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave them this land and so he had settled them in the land the land that was promised all those uh, hundreds of years before to um, Abraham and then there is the promise that equips us verses 11 to 24 and we can read there that um, he gives to Gideon uh, this promise then the Lord turned to him and said go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites and here is the confirmation have I not sent you so Gideon goes on the authority of Almighty God and then there is the demand that commits us God demanded that he destroy the altars of Baal break down the Asheroth and uh, he and his father uh, did this and it caused a stir as we know but he was obedient to the command and then there was the assurance that settles him we find that right at the end of the chapter where God answers Gideon's request the fleece wet and the fleece dry and God had told him that he would be with him so that uh, brings us to the situation where now we come to Judges chapter 7 and chapter 8 and we'll try and go through a few salient points Gideon is now established as the uh, uh, person the one appointed by God to rally the tribes and to lead the tribes against the Midianites and the Lord said um, sorry then Jerubbabel that is Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley and so he assembles these four tribes Manasseh, Asher, 
Zebulun and Naphtali as he's instructed and they camp as we've just read in the well of near the well of Hayrod and I just uh, there's a little map here that enlarges that particular section and shows us clearly where the hill of Moray was placed and the action we're going to consider takes place in that area so we come now to an interesting passage I think that uh, Dal Ralph Davis um, gives a heading to and he calls it the necessity of weakness and what we're going to see here is the gradual reduction of the army there in chapter 7 the Lord said to Gideon the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands and so Gideon says to them if you want to go home if you're frightened if you're worried if you rather not take part in this adventure then it's perfectly okay you can all go home and so we by working out the numbers 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained but then we see and it's interesting here isn't it we see there are still too many it was important as God says uh, that the people understood that it was not by their own hand by their own might by their own wisdom military planning but it was that they should attribute the glory to him verse 2 the people who are with you are too many for me it's important we emphasize the me for him to give the Midianites there was going to be as we shall see no battle they were going to be given into the hands lest Israel and here we have set out for us the true nature of men we do love as we shall see uh, to take some of the glory for themselves Israel might be tempted into saying my own hand has saved me so Yahweh sets a test and this is the very interesting bit uh, that quite a lot of people make quite a lot of Yahweh sets a test to reduce the size of the Israel army now contrary and I hope I'm not going to upset people here but contrary to a lot of popular teaching this test was to lap or not to lap but there is no support in the biblical text that one group of drinkers remained more active or more alert than the other the instruction to separate on the basis of God's instruction was merely God's mechanism of reducing the army to the necessary numbers the reduction was to reduce the army to 300 to underline the fact that as Israel was weak so God's power would be glorified I know there's been a lot of teaching I think and it's quite popular that the people who lapped up the water with their hands were chosen because they were more alert than the others but there's absolutely no basis for that in the scriptural text and what we see is that the inference that one group was more virtuous in keeping their eyes open than the other reveals a tendency in some people to try and steal 
of the glory from God. And indeed, at this point, it's more than likely that the Midianites were at least one, if not two miles uh, from the place where the people were called to kneel down and drink. So, having dealt with that, um, we move on. See, William Williams, as we have just sung, sums up this truth quite succinctly, doesn't he? He says, I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand, in verse 1. And in verse 2, the little couplet at the end says, Strong deliverer, be thou, be thou still my strength and shield. There is no opportunity here, is there, really, for anyone to take any of the credit or this group were chosen because they were more alert and they were better warriors and all this sort of thing. God merely wanted to reduce the numbers to 300 to show his power and to uh, prove that uh, it doesn't, doesn't really matter about the number of the army he would grant and gain the victory. So perhaps there is a lesson for us today as we look at this particular uh, event in the scriptures. You see, as the psalmist says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So numbers in this sense mean nothing. Physical strength means nothing. Only God has the power to order and to change circumstances. And it's, it is probably very difficult for us as humans who like to have some degree of control, some degree that we're actually doing something, we're actually contributing something. When it comes to God's will and purpose, particularly in deliverance and in salvation, and in many ways all these things pictures aren't they all these events are pictures of deliverance deliverance from oppression uh, deliverance that we can carry forward into deliverance from sin and the power of sin over and the liberty into which we're brought all these things are simply uh, in God's hand in God's power in God's will and in God's purpose so there is also in this there is encouragement in weakness, We've looked at the necessity of weakness in order that God's um, power should be displayed. But then there is in this a sort of encouragement in weakness. Just as we look down, uh, verse 9, sorry. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Malachites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore is multitude. So you can see even from those few verses the complete contrast in the size of the armies. This was an army almost without number, as multitudinous as the sand by the seashore. And all that Gideon has now at his disposal is 300 men. 
And so we read this, that Gideon had come down. There was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, he says, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned. Then his companion answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So Gideon is um, feeling a bit weak, a bit feeble, a bit trembly, a bit fearful of what's coming. So God understands this and God takes him down with his servant Pura for company. And Gideon hears the conversation in the camp and he remembers that uh, God knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust and so Gideon hears something very encouraging but he goes first of all doesn't he in his weakness in his fear in his trembling and indeed God does not demean us when we tremble nor does he ridicule our fears and we all have fears and we all have weaknesses and God never mocks us because we are fragile. God doesn't say to Gideon, oh, come on, get yourself together. Be a man, grow up, get on with it. No, God understands. And he takes him down and he grants him this encouragement uh, from the telling of this story. And in fact, Gideon is emboldened. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hands. So there's encouragement in this weakness, although he only has 300 men against this vast army. And so we come to the plan as we move through chapter 7. Pictures, torches, trumpets. And we notice, don't we, that these are hardly are the most lethal of weapons but they are weapons aren't they consistent with this theme of weakness how on earth are 300 men armed with pitchers, torches and trumpets are going to overthrow this vast vast army but it's the way that uh, God, God tells um, Gideon to plan and so he does and as a result, there is a victory. As we read there, when the 300 blew the trumpets, <coughs> nothing that they did happened, because the scriptures tell us, the Lord set every man, every man's sword rather, against his companion throughout the camp. The Lord caused absolute confusion in the hearts and minds. Why wasn't it that the officer says, calm down, calm down. Let's think about this. Let's assess the situation. No, immediately they were fighting one another in complete confusion, killing one another. And so it was a, a fear uh, rushed through the whole camp and the whole army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zerubar as far as the border of Abel Mihola uh, by Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. So as we look at this, I thought it was worth just looking at this uh, statement from 
Dalralph Davis as he reflects on Gideon and the weakness of Gideon and his fears and his tremblings as he reflects on the weakness of the armour. He says, in the light of this, we may need to alter our current, current stereotype of what a servant of Christ is like. We sometimes fool ourselves into thinking that a real servant of Christ is someone who is dynamic, assured, confident, witty, fearless. Because he's American, we get this frequently appearing on some Christian television network. Uh, we should not think... Here's a lovely thought, this. We should not think that we're unusable because we don't have that air about us. As we see this, and we can see in other parts of the, the particular book, in other parts of the scripture, Christ takes uncertain and fearful folk. He strengthens their hands in the most unusual ways. And he makes them stand for him and accomplish great things in his name. And in the book, he goes on to give several examples of uh, surprising men that were used with to mighty effect in the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's a thought to take with us. And then there is a thought here about the weakness within. You see, as we look through this, these three chapters, 6, 7 and 8, we find that Gideon has three battles. The first battle is against Baal, isn't it? He, Baal, is called to take down the altars of Baal, to destroy them, uh, to remove Baal from Baal worship from amongst the people of Israel. And then, as we have just read and considered, he's caused to take uh, issue against the forces of Midian. But thirdly, and we're just going to come and look at this, there is a problem within Israel itself. As you read through chapter 8, we find that uh, the men of Ephraim come and tell him, why on earth did you go on your own? Why didn't you come to us to help you? And in that, there's a sort of sense of pride, isn't it? Uh, they thought that Gideon and the other tribes, um, Manasseh and the others, would not be able to accomplish such a victory without their help. And then we read that they go to Succoth and to Penuel and ask for sustenance, for food, for help, for, for um, support, perhaps opportunity to rest and to take food. And we find that both in Succoth and in Penuel, uh, the people realise that Gideon is still chasing the Midianites. And they're frightened, aren't they? They're frightened that uh, perhaps by some... Uh, way Gideon will not uh, defeat the remaining Midianite kings, uh, the kings of Zeba and Zalmunna. Uh, and these two kings might come back and because they helped Gideon and the army that they might come back and wreak vengeance on them. And so they're scared and so they don't help Gideon. But of course Gideon goes on. You see we find there that lack of support because of pride and because of security, destroys the cohesion which was needed to complete the victory 
over the Midianites. It was a problem to Gideon. If he can't get supplies, if he can't get sustenance for his troops, uh, then he has to pause, find them for himself, and then resume the, the struggle and the pursuit later on. And so it is a problem. And there is an application, again, brought out in the commentary, that this is oftentimes a cause of problems in churches. There are some who are not always 100% in support of what's going on in the church. People in churches have agendas, and it's often the case that not all the agendas are based around, as we say, the same hymn sheet. And so we should be very careful. See, the people of Succoth and Penuel uh, were frightened, and the people of Ephraim were proud. And perhaps there are in churches people who are very keen to preserve their own position. Uh, and there are other people who want to go this way. And so we have to look at this as a, an example to us, perhaps, of the way in which we should go. There is always this great need for unity, for unity of purpose, for unity in the sense of mission and direction. And of course, the whole of our mission and direction and our unity uh, is found in the scriptures itself. And we should not, in many ways, go outside of the scriptures when we are determining the way in which the church will witness, the way in which the church will continue its struggle against the forces of darkness around us. So that's just a thought there. So, chapter 8, we continue on. How to end well. We know that uh, Gideon catches up with Ziba and Salmon and he uh, defeats them and he returns to Succoth and he returns to Penuel and you can read there the things that took place in there. But then we come very much uh, to the end of these series events. And how to finish well. Gideon has lived a life uh, that has been used by God mightily. And yet, as we see perhaps with other kings, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah and Hezekiah, they were all faithful kings, but unfortunately, towards the end of their lives, uh, they marred or destroyed some of their uh, legacy, if you like, uh, some of their fidelity to God, some of their faithfulness. We know that Hezekiah, in the end, showed the treasures uh, to the enemies really and there are many other issues where this happens men falter at the end of their lives and here we have Gideon again uh, coming to this particular position in his life you see Gideon rejects the offer of the people of Israel chapter 8 verse 22 then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord should rule over you. So he rejects the offer of creating a ruling dynasty. 
But we read elsewhere, and we'll come on to this briefly next time, we read elsewhere that he has a son. And the son, by a concubine, is named Abimelech, which in some senses conversely means my father is king. So we have, in a, in a sense, a conflict here between his response to the people and his deep-seated yearnings or his deep-seated desires uh, for ruling. Why would he call his son, my father is king, if he's definitely rejecting these things? And so we see in, in many ways Gideon is confused. There is a lack of clear purpose. And so we find this issue of the ephod, what was behind Gideon's decision uh, to create the ephod. The scripture doesn't tell us. The scripture just tells us that he created the ephod. And in the same way that the bronze serpent became uh, object of worship itself, so the ephod became the subject of worship. Then Gideon made it into an ephod, all the jewels and the gold and the earrings that he collected from the people of Israel. He made it into an ephod. Now, we all know what an ephod is. It was a garment that was created that went over the top of the high priest's tunic, where well, it's more of a tunic itself, a bit like a large tabard. Uh, and it had, the high priest had on it a plate with the 12 stones, and there was a pocket behind the ephod in which the Urim and Thummim were kept. And of course, you know that they were used, they were taken out at times to discern the will, the Lord's will in a particular matter. Now, there's lots and lots of speculation in the commentaries about this ephod, but I think sufficient for us to know is that it was made and it was set up in Ophrah, his city. And the most important comment, comment there is that all Israel played the harlot with it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. And this is a great danger that we're confronted here, aren't we? After all this good work, so to speak, he takes the shine off it in many ways uh, by actually resorting to what is obviously a very earthly, a very worldly thing. Was he at the back of his mind setting himself up as a sort of secondary source of God's wisdom? Did he go over the top with this? There is nothing in the text that tells us this was done in accordance with God's will. This is something that Gideon himself sets about to do. This is something that Gideon himself decides to do. And we can see the great disaster. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house, and all Israel played the harlot. What a sad ending in many ways, because the scriptures go on straight away to tell us later on that Gideon, so it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith uh, their God. And so we read that uh, Gideon died. Very sad, very sad. So there is then, as we read on, a tragic loss. We read right at the end there. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel 
So they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And this is the final reference in the book of Judges to the peace in the land. We've looked uh, through all the judges up to this point and after the uh, initial battle or the initial work of each of the judges we read the land had peace for 40 years, 80 years, 20 years, so many years. But this is the last time that the land would be referred to as having peace. And the reason for this is that it was a gift, wasn't it? God raised up the judges, he helped them to um, resist and to pursue their enemies. And once that was done, uh, then peace reigned over the land. But you see, what we go on to see, that peace was in many ways a gift that God gave. He gave the gift of the judge, he gave the gift of deliverance, it was a gift and it was an enjoyment that now we come on to see that Israel will forfeit. And because this is their constant apostasy, as we just read there, once Gideon was dead, now as soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bearish their God. Again, God has had incredible patience with them and we saw at the beginning 12 times in this period of some 400 years God raised up a deliverer. God delivered the people and for the length and the life of each of the judges the people worshipped God. But as soon as that in a sense authority was withdrawn they went back to their own ways. People who by persistent apostasy despise God's gift will find that gift withdrawn. The New Testament, doesn't it, speaks of grieving of the Holy Spirit. And I suppose in many ways, this is the Old Testament equivalent. So again, here is another warning of wandering away from God's will, wandering away from God's purpose, going back into the world, going back into the things that please the senses, the sensual and the lustful, the materialistic desires within us. We must, as again Paul writes, be ye separate, come ye out from among them. Uh, because as we read again in the letter to the Hebrews, here we have no continuing city. They sought for a city whose builder and maker was God. So one final word. We find in many ways, in one of Paul's epistles here, a summary of the message of judges. And he writes this to the Romans. He says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, of his forbearance, of his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? God will forbear. God does forbear time and time and time again. But the scriptures tell us that constant rejection, constant disobedience, constant turning away from God will lead to punishment and correction. But there is a warning there, isn't there? Make sure that we do not. Perhaps the words familiarity breeds contempt is a warning also here. Do not despise the riches of his goodness. 
God is good to each one of us. God forbears. He bears and forbears. And he is.